Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So we are back. Welcome to the 2022, the first episode of the Science of Sport podcast with myself, uh, Mike Finch and uh, Professor Ross Tucker. And it has been uh, a bit of a couple of months off that we've had. We've been traveling and doing all bits of different things and just planning for the year. So apologies that we've been off air for a while. But uh, we've got a bumper episode lined up for today, and uh, we're going to be talking about something which has become very relevant in South Africa particularly, and we do apologize for those of you living in the very cold climes of the Northern Hemisphere in January, because down in Cape Town, in South Africa, in the Western Cape particularly, it was reputed to be that we were the hottest place in the world on Saturday, uh, with temperatures in outlying areas of around 44 degrees Celsius, and here in Cape Town, uh, there was a lot of pool swimming and a lot of playing and sprinklers as temperatures reached the mid 30 degrees Celsius. But it has been a couple of weeks of uh, quite severe temperatures here in Cape Town. And we thought, well, I know that we won't be able to, you know, for those of you listening up in the Northern Hemisphere, you won't be able to see the relevance of listening to this now. But uh, certainly keep this one because when your summers come around in the middle of the year, you can uh, start getting into some of the detail around uh, particularly what we're going to be talking about today, that is exercise and heat. And one of the subjects that we're going to be listening to and one of the people we're going to be listening to um, is a guy by the name of Matt Beers, who is a South African mountain biker. And an event that happened here in South Africa um, just over a week ago is called the Atacross Extreme Challenge. And it's called that because it's a very long 109-kilometer mountain bike race, and which is normally held in hot conditions. But this year, conditions were touching 50 degrees Celsius at times. And uh, here's a bit on what Matt thought um, of the conditions on the day. Atacos was an absolute beast this year. Um, it's a proper hard race without 40 degree average temperatures, but yeah, the heat made it pretty, pretty unbearable. And um, a lot of the riders, including myself, were dropping like flies. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the average temperature was between on whoever's GPS is just between 38 and 40 and then at max was you know pretty much close to 50 so yeah the the heat was like something I've never experienced I don't think anyone has ever raced in that heat and um, it was quite yeah it was quite scary um, it definitely felt like your body was shutting down um i went a little bit too hard in the beginning got the heart rate too high and the core temperature too high and i think that kind of yeah my body just went into shock um and i was just about trying to get to the finish after that so survival you can't push any watts i was going full gas pushing like 320 watts uh, which is like endurance pace so yeah just just 
there's no amount of water or ice you could throw over yourself to get cool. It was just like this overwhelming feeling of heat and like claustrophobia. Well, for me, um, I was quite worried that I was doing damage to my body. Um, I think some riders did get some damage, muscle damage and kidney damage, but luckily all is well. And um, yeah, I would have definitely hydrated a lot better the 48 hours leading up to it and as well during the race would have just stopped at the first two water points which I think Simon did which was a really good call on his part um, so yeah he rode smart and was the, the smarter guy one definitely so that was Matt Beers, and uh, my apologies, not 109 kilometers, actually 121. I should know that as the editor of bicycling here. Yeah, but uh, yeah, certainly, uh, as you can hear in his uh, description of it, and don't forget, Matt is a man who has won the Absolute Cape Epic last year. So he's a very highly ranked South African, um, not both just not in South Africa, but uh, also around the world. So he, he really is a top athlete and uh, clearly under some distress. And, and, and Ross, I mean, it, it was one of those days where I'm not sure I would have pitched up at the start of a race I, like that. I wouldn't have shown up. I wouldn't have made the trip. This race, for those who don't know, it's it starts, what, two, three hours out of Cape Town. I would have looked at the forecast and stayed home. Because there's very little upside to putting yourself through, what was the winning time? It's just under six hours, right? Something like that, yeah. I mean, and the rest of the, the guys at the back are taking nine, ten hours of exposure yeah. to 50 degrees. Yeah. There's, there's no, I guess it's the no challenge, though, isn't it? You, 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 it's it's know. known as the hardest mountain bike day race in the in the world. They claim at times. So. Yeah, but as they say, I was reading a book the other day on the SAS and the and the you know the, in the in the military, and they say any idiot can suffer. <laughs> the point <laughs> is to not suffer, and so the best the best athletes are the ones who prepare specifically for the conditions. But how do you prepare for forty five degree? And, and, and like this is exposed, right? This yeah. is not under tree cover. This is exposed to the sun for six hours at over 40 degrees. There's no ways that's safe to do. Yeah. Um, and it's actually, it's actually testament to how amazing human physiology is that as many people finished it. Because I looked at the results the other day and hundreds of people made it. Yeah, 50%, but I think. 50% failed. failed yeah. But yeah. I'm, I'm saying if you look at it with a glass half full, 50% can actually do that. That's how astonishing human physiology is in the heat. We are, we are thermal like miracles. Mm. In fact, it's one of the things that makes humans what we are, is our ability to thermoregulate. And that's kind of the theme of this podcast, but it is, it is amazing. But I, the, the conditions on that race would have canceled most races around the world. There's no doubt. Yeah. yeah. He talks a little bit at the start about, I, I've, we, I've never ridden in conditions like that. Mm. I guess that's a pretty key point because he's got no reference and his body's got no reference to that sort of level of heat. Yes, and the key thing is acclimation. Like, we're, and as we as we dive into the theory and what happens to the body, and I guess the most important thing, if you're listening to this, is I don't want it to happen to me. So, what's the prevention? By far, the most effective two things are fitness and adaptation. So, fitness. Matt Beers has got more than most humans in the world. I mean, the guy, as you said, he won the epic. What was that? Three months ago. Yeah. So there's no there's no fitness issue here. Yeah. But the the thing is, are you adapted to the heat? Now, he's riding that race in the middle of his summer, so he probably is adapted to the heat because if he's on the bike for four or five hours a day, then guaranteed in the month leading up to that, he is heat adapted, but not to that degree. Nobody would have been. 
I was going to say, can so, you be so, adapted to that level of no, temperature? So, the, so by scale, everyone in that race is in, in uncharted territory. Mm. Um, so, of course, that's why he's accurate when he says there's this, we've, we've never done anything like this before. But, but the fitness, the cardiovascular adaptation and the heat adaptation in elite athletes is so good that they are closer to being adapted than many others. And that's part of the reason why guarantee you the attrition at the back is way 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 worse than at the front yeah and it's also why when we watch say an olympic marathon we expect the worst because we project our mortal <laughs> physiology onto the elite they're so well trained and mm. what we'll discover is that many of the training benefits that you get in response to elite high level endurance training are the same as what you'd get in response to heat so there's considerable overlap which makes an elite athlete almost heat immune but again <laughs> there's a point at which that fails uh, because you, you had again how do you how do you get prepared for 40 degrees at the start line never mind 50 at the finish do we know how the body does adapt i mean does it does it does the veins get thinner or i mean how, how does an elite athlete become more heat adapted than an un, a relatively unchanged untrained athlete well everyone can adapt so your your training and performance status doesn't influence your ability to adapt to the heat mm. that adaptation takes many forms primarily they're cardiovascular uh, and again when we when we start to explore what happens in the heat what the challenge to the body is you'll understand why this happens but for instance your plasma volume goes up so a fit athlete has got a higher plasma volume if you put that person in hot environments often it goes even higher and you and I, by the way, as non-elite athletes, we would get the same benefits if we spent two hours a day in the heat riding like it is right now in Cape Town. Yeah. So plasma volume goes up. Your stroke volume, which is the amount pumped by the heart, every contraction is going up. Your ability then to cool off is higher because you're sending blood to the skin. Remember, that's how we lose heat. Mm. We also lose heat through the evaporation of sweat. And our sweating capacity goes up as we are heat adapted which then is is buffered or offset by the fact we've got more plasma volume. So you can mm. see these things all interconnected. Uh, our core temperature is lower at any given exercise intensity as a consequence of all this. Um, and that is ultimately what drives heat adaptation, in addition to certain neurological changes that are happening, mediated by molecular factors and perception, the result of which is that the first day of a hot spell you feel absolutely terrible by the seventh or eighth day you've become accustomed to it now that's that's just the english way of saying physiologically adapted and yeah. familiar with what you're experiencing so the point i want to make there is that all the responses to exercise training are similar to heat but they just differ by scale and the heat amplifies them a little bit more a little bit more of a challenge mm. on the cardiovascular system on the sweat response on the heart on the brain mm. and so training in the heat induces changes that go over and beyond uh, above and beyond the changes in, induced by training if that makes sense yeah yeah i mean it would be fascinating to actually study a sort of a, or a, a, a person living in europe versus a, a south african bushman who lives for mm. most of his life in extremely hard and hot conditions. And the physiology of those two people must be almost like they're not from the same species yeah. in many ways. Yeah, the sweat capacity, for example, can go, it, it changes enormously as mm. we get adapted to the heat. 
And, and so and in order to facilitate that sweat response, we need to also have the ability to send more blood to the skin because that's mm. going to take heat where it needs to be lost at the surface of the skin. The plasma volume can go up by, I think, 16 17%. That's within the first week of exposure to the heat. So in these individuals who've lived and been sure. adapted through generations, you'll find like that there are major, major cardiovascular differences between them and So it's and as us. short as a week that you can see changes in adaption. That's many quite of the, extraordinary. Yeah, many of the cardiovascular adaptations take only about 7 to 10 days. Oh. The, the, the research on heat acclimation suggests that you give it 14 days or more because there are others that require a little bit more work, shall we call it, in order to happen. Um, but the plasma volume and the heart rate related changes happen within the first seven or eight days. Sure. It depends a lot, like most things in, in sports science, on exactly what you do in those seven or eight days. And there are different models for heat adaptation. So for example, I've seen studies where they'll make guys go 60 minutes at 70%. And sure enough, on day one, they will fall off at 45 minutes. They can't get to 60. Mm. By day three, they're getting to 55. By day six, they're getting to 60. And by day 10, they're getting to 60 relatively comfortably. Mm. But the problem with that is it's the same workload the whole time. Mm. And so in actual fact, the stress is less over time because they're getting better at handling it, if that makes sense, relatively yeah. speaking. Yeah. Yeah. So then you might want to do some self-paced stuff. The dilemma for athletes, and I mean, now we're getting on to prevention a bit, is if I've got a race like Atacuas or any other marathon in the heats, an Olympic marathon, is how much am I willing to sacrifice training quality during the time that I'm adapting to the heat? Because I can't go out and do the normal training session mm. because the heat's going to stop me. So there's a trade-off between focusing on how do I drive my ability to adapt to the heat and actually keeping my performance ability in my event. Mm. And so that's why you probably need longer and the best athletes would probably allocate a month Mm. or more towards getting into a hot environment ahead of the Olympics and trying to manage that smooth transition of training into the heat. <laughs> mm. He talks a little bit about feeling like, I mean, let's not forget that despite what he says in that interview or that voice note, um, he finished third in the race. <laughs> yeah, so not bad. It wasn't a complete failure for him, but he would have been the firm favorite going into it. He talks about his, his feeling like his body was shutting down. Mm. That's quite dramatic to say something like that when you're still racing at the sharp end of the field. Yes, but I've, I know from my stalking you on Strava that you cycled yesterday at yeah. 11.30 mm. and on Saturday at 1, yes. when it was also the hottest place on the mistake. planet. And it was a mistake. And I guarantee you, you felt the same as he did. Well, I, I mean, I did it yesterday as an experiment yeah. because we were doing this podcast today. And I can <laughs> tell you the one thing that we, we're going to get into this, and maybe that's the next point we talk about in terms of Matt, is that I tried to ride relatively easy yesterday, right. but I couldn't get my heart rate up. And that's. But I was exhausted after a ride that normally takes me around about two hours. Yesterday I did that same ride in two and a half hours, and my average heart rate was not beyond zone two, zone three. Mm. But I actually couldn't get it any higher than that. Mm. And at, at points in the last half hour, I was stopping on the side of the road under the tree just to cool my body <laughs> down because that's how hot it was. I've never experienced that before. 
But you can see how if you were to relate that to someone, you would describe it potentially as shutting down. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And that's why I say beers and you, for all the differences, and it was the same for me a couple of weeks ago, what is it, a week and a half, mm. I had I planned to go early morning Thanks. and I had I had work come up. Next thing I said, well, I'm still going to do the ride, but I only left at 10.30 and I finished at like 40 degrees. And it was the same sensation. And you did 100 k's in four hours or something. Eh? Yeah, it was like 120 k or something, yeah. five-hour ride. and. Yeah. Towards the end of last year as well, I did a day day long ride thing, and same story. And you just, it's it's difficult to explain to someone who's never been in that situation. But it's as if a car that usually has five gears mm. has had its top two gears taken away from Absolutely it. Absolutely spot on. And it can run, and it can run in third gear quite comfortably. Mm. But the moment you throw a challenge in its way, it can't get over that challenge. So. No. I remember riding with these two youngsters on this one ride and they were fresh because they just started and I was into my 10th hour or something. And uh, the moment we hit a bump, even a, even a bridge over a road, mm. I got dropped because yeah. I just could not go 1% harder, mm. but I wasn't going hard. Mm. And so it's really interesting to listen to Matt Beer say that he was, he said, and I think his words were full gas, but he was only able to go 320 watts, which okay. <laughs> That's yeah. beyond most people's full gas. But for him, it's he said it. It's endurance temper, but that's maximum effort. Yeah. So something has constrained his ability to go harder. Mm. Same as what you felt at the weekend. Same as what I felt. And that's the most, for me, that's the most interesting thing about exercise in the heat is that the body actually is trying to protect us from ourselves, even in a race situation. Mm. I mean, he had everything to go harder for. He could have come first. Yeah. But he couldn't. Because physio, his brain saying, Matt, let's not do this to ourselves. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and so, so for a brief, brief history lesson, I'll give it to you in like one or two minutes. The, the theory used to be, and in fact, when I started honors, this was the prevailing theory, was that when we exercised in the heat, the main challenge was a competition between our skin and our muscles for blood. You can imagine our blood supply is finite. It's limited. We don't have <laughs> infinite amounts of it. Mm. But when we exercise, we need it in the muscle. And when we're in the heat, we need it in the skin. So there's a tug of war that is established between those two circulatory bodies or beds, um, muscle versus skin. And the theory used to be that at some point we failed to meet the demand in one or the other. And that's what caused us to either overheat if we couldn't get the blood to the skin or to fail exercise if we couldn't get the blood to the muscle. Make sense? Yeah. Then, then in the 1990s, a number of clever studies were done where they showed that in most circumstances, not all, and this, this theoretical tug-of-war limit does still exist, but in most circumstances, our body is quite capable of meeting the demand for skin and muscle blood flow at the same time. In, yeah, in normal conditions. In, and, and in hot conditions, mm. in normal exercise um, performance. Mm. So the only time you can, you can manipulate this to, to cause the system to fail is if you do repeated high-intensity exercise. Because when you do high-intensity exercise, you need a lot of blood in the muscle. And if you do that in the heat, then you also need a lot of blood in the skin. Then that tension, that theoretical tension is realized and it becomes a real problem. But when we're outdoors doing moderate, low-intensity endurance exercise, it's not really a factor. Mm. So a number of studies came out showing that this was not really the thing that caused us to fail in the heat. Instead, what was discovered, and most of that research was coming out of Scandinavia, which I've always found interesting. It's why have they led the world on heat. You'd have thought that <laughs> have been, but they are, the, they are the leaders. You can go all the way back to the 1950s, Nielsen, and then I think it was his daughter in the 1990s and 2000s, Bodil Nielsen, was the preeminent heat researcher in the world. 
And they started doing these really cool studies, amazing work, where they were measuring the brain during exercise in the heat. So they'd make reasonably trained cyclists go at 40 degrees Celsius to exhaustion and check what happened in the brain. EEG, blood flow to the brain, EMG activity at the muscle. And to sum up very quickly what they found is that at the point at which these people in the laboratory said, I'm done, I can't go anymore, certain things were always present. Number one is their body temperature was always 40 degrees or, or higher. So there seemed to be an upper limit. Remember your temperature as you're sitting listening to this, assuming you're not exercising as you listen to this, is 36 and a half, 37 degrees. Yeah. Failure happens at around 40 to 41 degrees Celsius, depending on the person, their level of motivation and the situation. They also found that blood... So your body can go up to 40 degrees Celsius during exercise, which if you had to take a temperature of somebody right there trying to get into a, into a store halfway through a ride, they'd tell you you had a COVID, wouldn't they? Because your temperature would go up. <laughs> well, so, so they, wouldn't pick, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't pick that up because that yeah. is the most useless test ever developed by yeah, humans. Yeah. It's so rubbish. I can't, we still do that in South Africa, and I can't understand why. But, so, anyways, but what you're saying is that but the body temperature can get to that point during exercise. If we could measure it properly, either either with an ingestible, these days the military's developed these tablets you can ingest, and they measure your temperature. They submit a Bluetooth signal to a device. Okay. It's like a little capsule. If we could measure it there. It's a bit more comfortable than the then, anal one. Than the old rectal <laughs> thermometer. Yeah, bend over and ride. Uh, or tympanic, if you want. They're a little bit less accurate. Obviously, the closer to the center of the body you are, mm. the better, right? You would measure someone at, even when we do our rides, and we're by no means trying to win any races, we would be 38, 38 and a half, on a hotter day, 39, 39 and a half, and not feel at all like anything was wrong. I've said on this podcast somewhat jokingly, but I, it's it's worth repeating because I think it's quite profound. Is if you if you measured yourself when you were sheltering under the shade of a tree on Sunday, your breathing rate would have been forty one breaths a minute, heart rate one hundred and fifty five, body temperature thirty nine. You'd be sweating profusely. If you were in a hospital, they'd call a priest. Yes. But <laughs> but but in fact, yeah. in that situation, you're okay. Okay, yeah. you're not comfortable, but you're okay. When we finish our Friday rides and have a beer at the at the pub to finish. Mm. Everyone in that situation is overheated, breathing hard, sweating profusely, and would look based purely on numbers like something catastrophic was wrong. But in the body, this is actually normal. That's quite an important point to bear in mind. It is because I think that I've always thought that your body always tried to maintain sort of homeostasis in terms of temperature. So everything was based on regulating, keeping your temperature and, and everything else in your body mm. at, a, at a balanced level. I didn't realize that you actually went up in temperature and I mean, I know that your heart rate goes up and all that sort of thing, which would again mm. be an indication of exertion and the effect that it has. So yeah. that, yeah, that and, is interesting that the it, body's able to have this range. And it does still, it does defend temperature, but it mm. just allows that range to be wider when we exercise mm. than when we're addressed because, you know, we're all, we're all overly familiar with infection and flu and fevers by now but when you have a fever and your mum used to say you're, you're hot I can feel that that's also a similar phenomenon where your body has allowed the temperature to go up in response to infection mm. and so you get this fever response mediated by inflammation and it's called hyperpyrexia and so on so mm. exercise allows the same thing I have a friend and former colleague who did a study at the we have this massive cycle race every year, usually March. <laughs> and he gave a bunch of people these ingestible tablets, measured their body temperature during what for some people was three hours, for some people was six hours. And 
the universal finding is that within the first hour, his body temperature goes from 36.5 to 38.5-39, and then it just stays there. So it's almost like there the is still regulation, it's just at a new level, new level yeah. of 39. And it's only when things go wrong, and that we'll get onto what that involves a few different ways, mm. that it now hits 40, 41, and then eventually you're in Tom Simpson mm. <laughs> territory, heat stroke territory, which, which again, Matt alluded to, some guys in that race. I know a youngster was spotted by one of the support went weaving all over the road, mm. the relevance of which I'll get to shortly, and then eventually fell over, hit his head. They said, no, you're off, you're off to the hospital. And he was actually quite badly affected by the heat. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Sure. So, so sorry. So we, that was something of a diversion. What the Scandinavians recognized is that the commonality at the point of fatigue in their studies was central nervous system change and linked to it was behavior change. These, these folk would sometimes forget their name. They lost balance. Their coordination was gone. That's why I said a guy weaving sideways across the road like he's drunk, that's a classic sign of heat stroke. Yeah. Because once your brain gets hot, it fails to control your muscle movements and your coordination. There are famous, famous clips. If, you're, if you have a moment, go look up Gabrielle Anderson, 1984 Olympics. Look up Jim Peters, 1954 Olympic Games. Uh, look up Callum Hawkins, Brisbane Commonwealth, so not Brisbane, Gold Coast Commonwealth Games. Mm. You'll see guys suffering from the later stages of this heat stroke and they can't run in a straight line. They look as though they've been paralyzed on half their body. Their coordination is gone and they keep falling down. CBC cameras also recorded Englishman Jim Peters' valiant attempt to win the 26-mile marathon. And late that same afternoon, stricken Englishman entered the gates of Empire Stadium to write an agonizing chapter into the history of international games. Dazed and dehydrated, he collapsed just 220 yards short of his goal inside Empire Stadium with the nearest competitor miles behind him. A stunned, horrified crowd of 35,000 watched in silence as Peters was carried off. I always remember Paula Newby Fraser happening Same to the Ironman. She was collapsed and just having water poured over. And that was a mile from the finish. Mm, exactly. Yeah. So we've all seen it. There was a Japanese athlete I remember seeing. Someone from NCAAs did it. Joshua Chapter guy, when the, when the uh, World Cross Country Champs were held in, was it, was it Mombasa? I forget. It was in East Africa. Yeah, well, somewhere in Kenya. He, I do remember that. He yeah. attacked with about 4K to go. And with 1K to go... The same thing happened to him, and he looked—he looked like he turned to stone. Is that, is that overheating, or is that heat exhaustion, or is that? Well, let's, maybe we should just define this. Yeah, yeah. That to me feels like somebody's gone so hard they've overheated. But there is heat exhaustion and heat stroke. Right. So can, maybe you can break that down and explain what those all mean. So they talk about exertional heat illness that mm -hmm. exists generally thought of as a spectrum, from mild to severe. On the mild end would be things like, I feel hot, <laughs> like yeah. we had at the weekend, yeah. right? Uh, then you get heat exhaustion, 
where your body temperature would be between 38 and a half and 40. Now, again, that's not, that's not a red flag because everyone who finishes an endurance event is between 38 and 40, mm-hmm. but they're not, they don't have heat exhaustion. Mm-hmm. But what you often find heat exhaustion presents as is dizziness, slight confusion, low blood pressure. Why? Because your body is sending so much blood to the skin to try and skin, cool you yeah. down yeah. that your central pressure falls. So that, that's in, partly, in part responsible for the dizziness. Uh, nausea. They feel like they've got a fever or the chills because they're, they're trying so hard to lose that heat. Mm. And so that's heat exhaustion. Heat stroke. Now we moved from the mild in the middle to the very far extreme of the spectrum. This is the worst case scenario is where you actually get potential for multi-organ failure. You get central nervous system symptoms. So now you get major confusion. These people often don't know where they are, who they are, what they're doing. And these are on the same spectrum. Exhaustion versus stroke is on the same spectrum of heat. Yeah, so heat stroke is now the body temperature is over 40, sometimes in 41 degrees. Person often loses consciousness. I've spoken earlier, they lose coordination. They stumble Mm. and fall over. They can't lift themselves back up. They are confused. They don't recognize their own. I mean, there are stories. They don't recognize their own family members on the side of the road. Mm. And when you get that combination of very elevated body temperature plus the neurological symptoms, that's how you distinguish heat stroke from heat exhaustion. Now, with heat stroke, this is a a life-threatening medical emergency Mm. because it causes all kinds of circulatory-driven inflammatory responses which cause leakage of toxins into the cells, into the blood, and eventually can lead to multi-organ failure. And in fact, heat stroke is the third most common cause of death during exercise in US sport. Wow. Behind cardiac events, like sudden death, we've done that on this podcast, and neck and head trauma. Then comes heat stroke. The most common... I suppose it sounds like it's high, but that's relatively speaking because even those other ones are fairly low. Yeah, yeah. I think this is is, um, fire and brimstone now, literally. But uh, it's not not super common. But I'll I'll tell you some stats in a moment. The the one I did want to say is the sport that most commonly has it is American football because particularly in the southern U.S. states, they start their preseason camps for college football in probably August, September. And then they wear heavy padding and clothing and helmets yeah. and they train at, at 30, 40 degrees Celsius. What's that? 100 Fahrenheit. Mm. And so that's actually the most common place that you find these heat strokes in American sport. Mm. Uh, incidence wise, there's a race called the Falmouth Road Race. I don't know if you've, it's on Cape Cod up on the northeast coast, but it's, it's a seven mile, 11K, I think, yeah. race. Uh, run more or less in the hotter part of the year. They've, I saw a paper there. They're saying two per thousand, which is unbelievably high. Oh, okay. That means every 500th person, they reckon, is getting heat stroke. Now, I don't know that that classifies as the most severe heat stroke, life-threatening. Mm. Because we've done, we've done work at the medical tent of our two oceans and comrades. Admittedly, they're a 56-kilometer and 90-kilometer races, so the intensity is really low. You wouldn't expect heat stroke with low intensity. But we get one every five or six years. So you've got a lot of exposure in those races, don't you? Because you're out there for so, a long time. Right. So to yeah. some extent, the intensity might be offset mm-hmm. by the fact that it's 10, 11 hours versus in Falmouth, it's 7K. I mean, for mm. most people, it's 30 minutes. Mm. Um, but yeah, two, two per thousand is crazy high. Wow. <laughs> uh, even in Boston, I saw a stat that's two per 10,000. So it's one every 5,000 people, which mm. is... Which is pretty high if you think about it. I'm not sure why the U.S. reports such high numbers and we, we don't. Maybe it's 
part acclimation related. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's heat stroke, and it is it is a medical emergency, and it kills people, so it has to be taken super seriously. And does this all fall under heat exhaustion, or is heat exhaustion just another right, term so, for? Yeah, that, these that all spectrum. these are all these are all exertional heat illness related right. co- okay. syndromes or complications. Heat exhaustion is one of them. It's mild. Heat stroke is the most severe, the most severe of them, which is potentially fatal. And if you don't cool those people off quickly their prognosis is not good at all. Yeah. And the faster you cool them, the better, which mm-hmm. is why most of these races in the heat now would have ice buckets and baths at the finish line. And if someone comes in like that, you just throw them straight into ice. And you basically, I mean, if you, you, try and, you try and freeze him to cool him down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's, I, I can imagine that. I mean, for, for all of you that have d- competed or exercised in a lot of heat, just diving into a pool or taking a cold shower is the most wonderful thing. Mm. I always worry whether my heart's going ex- to explode from the change <laughs> no, in temperature. A, that, that doesn't happen. Is that a misnomer? Like, yeah, that's, that's a misnomer. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so I can c- jump into the pool with ease then. It's the best thing for you on a very, very hot day if you're feeling that way. In fact, it could save your life if you were in heat stroke realm, but you probably wouldn't be making the choice to jump into the pool exactly. if you were there. I mean, I remember just two two quick stories. One, I met a guy who used to work, do a lot of this for the military. He said when you had a heat stroke out in the military, because you can imagine, they get it a lot, mm. and you've got no cold water and ice, they used to fly a Blackhawk over the, you know, the big helicopters. Oh, wow. Used to fly a Blackhawk 10 meters off the ground over the guy and just blast him with downforce, the, the, the downdraft of the to try and get wind cooling, because that's your next best option after water and ice. Cool. And the other story I remember is we were in the medical tent at Two Oceans, and they brought a guy in, he collapsed on the course, not after, which is, that's a key differentiator. Lots of people collapse after racing, but if you collapse during exercise, that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, and they brought him in, put him in an ice bucket, and for the next half an hour, he continued to get hotter wow. in a full body ice bath. And then you look at that and you go, that's wow. some seriously messed up metabolic activity because, because when you're in f- basically two degrees Celsius, let's call it water, mm. and you're still o- overheating, if that means your, your internal molecular m- biology is producing heat at an unbelievable rate. You can imagine what's happening there. How does a med- medical person then differentiate between somebody who might have a heart problem or a heat-related illness because they're, they're, they could present a fairly similar symptoms. Yeah, because especially if you come in at 40 degrees Celsius and 40 mm. degrees Celsius, but I think, look, part of it's the temperature, 41, you, you mm. treat, you know, you don't, if you hear hooves, you don't look for zebras, right? If you see 41, <laughs> you don't look for, for heart. Yeah. Um, yeah remember, that if it's a sudden cardiac arrest, then, then you look for the cardiac signs of that. Heat mm. stroke, the, the hearts are still beating. Mm. Uh, so that would probably be the main thing. I mean, I'm not an emergency physician at those yeah. races, so yeah. I'd be the last person you'd want to ask that. But yeah, so that's that's heat stroke, and it's that's that's a disaster, and that's why guys like Matt Beers, it's right to be scared. <laughs> well, he talks about. We yeah. can move on to this now. He right. talks about. He was worried that he was going to do long-term damage, mm-hmm. and he talks a little bit about his his muscles and his kidneys. Is mm. that realistic? Yeah. That's that's so that's that's realistic not only in the long term but short term. I mean, we've already spoken about what can go wrong. The other condition that is often happens with this is something called rhabdomyolysis, which is basically where your muscle fibers are broken down. Now that shouldn't happen. <laughs> and when they do break down, you get leakage of all those contents into the blood, and it presents with blood in the urine. So if you ever exercise and you have a lot of blood in the urine, that's a very potentially serious sign. 
Sure. And one of the conditions that can cause that is rhabdomyolysis. Related to that could be kidney problems and kidney damage. So those and are. Is that short term or are, are there potential long term damages? Well, they present in the short term, and it's not really known if that's related to heat stroke. Other, by the way, rhabdomyolysis can also be caused by excessive alcohol intake. I mean, as in a lot, <laughs> and also um, physical trauma, car accident victims often mm. present with rhabdomyolysis because the collision just damages the muscle to the extent, the same way that heat mm. and ex- extreme exercise in the heat can do. Whether there are long-term consequences is interesting. I was at a conference in London once, and I met one of the world leaders on this heat stroke work, a guy called Douglas Casser. And he actually got into the field because he was quite a good athlete. I think it was either at school or university, and he suffered heat stroke. He said he's never been the same. And his working theory is that once an athlete goes to the extremes of a Callum Hawkins, Jim Peters, um, who's that on Gabriel Anderson, mm. and you've actually gotten heat stroke, you never get better. You, you can exercise again, sure. But you can never quite go to the limit that you went to to get that heat stroke in the first place. Sure. It's like your body doesn't want to go there. Yeah, it's almost as that remembers it and, and doesn't want to go there. I've not, to be honest, I've not seen research that tracks these individuals for a long period, mm-hmm. but that was his, his theory for it. Yeah. So, yeah, there is potential for long term damage. Of course, if you don't treat heat stroke, the long term damage could be. <laughs> pretty fatal. That's, yeah, yeah. that's pretty permanent then. Right? Yeah. So. We're going to get into some of the more details around heat policies and heat indexes, etc. But let's just stick to Matt just for the moment. Yeah. He talks a little bit about um, hydrating before. You should have drunk more than the 36 hours before mm. that. Comments on that? I, I, can you store water like a camel? No, <laughs> no. So all you would be doing there is you'd be asking your kidneys to work a little bit more the day before and you'd just be peeing out clearer water and reabsorbing less of it. <laughs> Yeah. So, so no, that doesn't really work. What, what may help is the ingestion of very, very cold liquid or ice slushies or slurries, if you wish, during exercise. Mm-hmm. Because A, the surface area of ice slurries is so high and B, they're so cold. So they literally cool you directly. As they move through your mouth, down into your stomach and into your gut – they literally cool you down just in the same way that sitting in a bucket of ice does, except it's from inside. Right. So that might have some benefit. So that's, an inter- that's interesting you talk about that because when I went riding uh, yesterday and the day before, I put my water bottle into the freezer and I thought to myself, well, having water, obviously his hydration, doesn't make any difference whether it's cold or not because obviously as the ride goes on, it ends up tasting mm. like warm sweat. Yeah, it's, like, it's like drinking tea by the French. Yeah, but I suppose yeah. it's still hydrating you, but there actually is a benefit to having that cold water based if on… If it's cold enough and if mm. you can consume it often enough. But the yeah. problem is that that sip or two, you know, it's 150 milliliters, 200 mils, is being added to a 70, 90, 100 whatever kilogram body with so much body water and heat that it really is like almost a drop in the proverbial ocean. So unless you can continue to do it repeatedly, it probably isn't going to make a massive effect. Mm. The bigger bigger difference is, and I'm sure you've experienced this, is perceptual. Mm. Is that to drink something warm actually is just almost makes the situation it's worse. I know. Yeah. So to have a to have the option of something cold makes quite a big perceptual difference. And as we'll discover shortly, when it comes to heat below the heat stroke threshold, perception mm. is reality. Perception is is probably the main thing that drives performance. And the failure to perform is how hot you feel, not necessarily how hot you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so the the prehydration thing that Beer spoke about, not really. 
drinking during, as long as it's cold and often, it's a tiny effect. And then the so if we if we rank these things, the the prehydration is nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Fourth or fifth on the list, I'm going to lose count. Next up, let's call it, would be drinking during. Pre-cooling strategies can be quite effective. So that means making sure that I start with a lower body temperature than I normally would. And that can be achieved either through ice buckets, ice bath immersion before exercise, warming up in an ice vest. And in fact, if you watch the Olympic Games, you will now see most of the developed countries will do warm-ups in these ice vests that Mm. are designed to try and let them warm up the muscles, but keep the core cold. Yeah, you see in the Tour de France a lot where they're in those time trial bikes exactly. with the vests on and they've exactly. got those vests. Yeah. Now, so the core is cooler, the, but the legs are still getting warm we, we, enough to which race. Which is important because cold skin and cold muscles can reduce the contractility of your muscles. So they, they don't produce as much power. And that's why, in fact, pre-cooling strategies generally are shown not to work for sprint exercise. Okay. Because A, there's no thermal limit anyway. No one's going to overheat in a 400. <laughs> no. And B, you actually probably, you, you get more downside because you cool the muscles and the skin potentially off and you want them actually to be quite hot. But the moment you start doing endurance exercise, then that pre-cooling helps because it creates, a, in effect, a heat sink or a heat reservoir because now my body temperature at the start is 35.8. My muscles can still be warm. Again, this is why... You wouldn't do it in an ice bath and then try and run because you'll have, <laughs> you'll have, you know, when you get cold joints, you can't even move them. Never mind, run like an yeah. elite athlete. Um, but you can have a cool upper body and a that's warm the, legs. That's the idea. Yeah, and so that's that's proven to be actually moderately effective. There's a review article, senior author on which is a guy called Stephen Chung. Also, he's a Canadian, one of the leaders in the space, and their conclusion is that pre-cooling for endurance exercise actually works. It either it either cools you off before and then it allows you to get warmer at a slower rate. So you got and you also got more room to play in. Yeah. So if if we come back to what I mentioned earlier, if if your off switch is thirty nine point six degrees, you want to start as far below thirty nine point six degrees as possible mm. because it gives you more wiggle room, if that makes sense. Mm. More more heating room. Mm. Yeah. So pre cooling is probably third on the list of things you can do. Second is heat adaptation, which we, I think we've covered off. Mm. You, you just have to do the time. You just have to teach the body what it feels like. Interestingly, you can do that passively or actively. Mm. So what a lot of athletes have begun doing, and there's some interesting studies on this, is that they'll do their normal exercise in coolish conditions and then jump into a sauna for 30 minutes. Mm. And that 30 minutes heat exposure achieves the same kinds of things as 30 minutes of exercise heat exposure does. So there might be a way you can manipulate and play with those things if you've got the time and the money mm. <laughs> and the option. And just, then finally, just, it's fitness. Just taking a, just a slight step back, I, I'm, I'm interested that you were saying that the ice vests, and it's just maybe a, a question that I've considered here. It feels like with those ice vests that you're just throwing like an ice box, an ice block into a boiling kettle where it probably does work. But so mm. the science has proven that there is a performance benefit, mm. but the, the length of that benefit obviously is very difficult to determine because it's based on the size of the athletes and how hot they get, etc. Right. But so you, I was just questioning whether they how, how much of an effect that would have. Um, obviously, it's marginal gains, as the uh, <laughs> as yeah. some well-known cycling team has often said. But is that is it a marginal gain or is it significant? 
difference. Well, so, so, so statistically, it's called a moderately uh, statistically significant effect. That's literally from the paper okay. that Stephen so, Chung yeah, was so author. And but but wh- where it is a good question, and I have wondered this myself, is if I'm doing a marathon mm. over the course of two hours and four minutes, by the time I've run fifteen minutes, that ice vest is a distant memory. Yes. But to your body, it's not quite. It's it's so obviously, if I'm doing a twenty-minute trial, you know, it's a it's a thirteen k or a fifteen k time trial in Tour de France. Now you can see there's a viable direct yes. way that it's going to help. It could keep you cool, have an effect for the entire time trial. It could it yeah. could literally get you to the finish line, right. still a degree or two cooler than you would have been, and and because you started with a greater reserve, mm. and you you warm and and your remember your skin is now, if you've got this. This cooler blood and this this complex cardiovascular readjustment mm. going on, blood to the skin coming back maybe a little bit cooler if if the, if the chest and so on's cooler. So there is some evidence that it actually helps you heat up slower. Mm. It delays the rate at which you overheat, mm. and that effect can last for let's go ten k race potentially. But by the time you get to Atacuas, you know it's five and a half six hours, or five-hour day in the Tour de France where you've got the last 45 minutes up Alpe d'Huez, yeah, you probably aren't really. <laughs> yeah. So then in that situation, you're just managing perception. You're pouring cold water on your head like Matt was trying to do. Mm. Uh, by the way, you get you get like wearable coolables, things like neck neck collars that yes. you can also pre... The problem is your neck is 8% of your body surface area. No, sorry, 1%, 1%. Your head is 8 so you can put like a, a cold helmet or hat on, or you can put a neck thing on, but then it is the drop in the ocean thing coming back to it, you know? Just in that, because Alberto Zalazar mm. famously won the 1991 Comrades right. Marathon wearing a neck towel. Yeah, they were called coolets or something. Something like that. But he, yeah. he absolutely maintained that the reason why he was able to, because he had an overheating problem he maintained at that well, time. Well, remember he ran himself to last rights territory in that in that Boston Marathon. True. Yes, he and, had experience. And that was an, and his was a name that this Douglas Casser guy mentioned. He said, look at him, he's never been the same ever since. But anyway, sorry, I yeah, interrupted. But he was an example of somebody that claimed this neck cooling system was the reason why he won and, the Comrades, which is held in very hot conditions i was there on that day yeah yeah i remember watching that as a mm. kid i I, th- I think that those things have a perceptual benefit mm. and again within normal physiological body temperature regulations so now if we exclude that one in five thousand whatever it is who gets proper heat stroke that perception is the most important thing for performance in the heat mm. Mm. um so as long as you're wearing something like that that you can keep cool and even if you're pouring water on your head every five to ten minutes and that's cold water and it's keeping you cool, your performance will definitely be better than someone who doesn't do it mm. just because you feel better. Yeah. And I sometimes like shake my head in amazement that my PhD boils down to like just make yourself feel better. But that's, that's what it is. Like when you, when you are trying to manage the physiology of performance, the, the way the athlete feels is the fundamental thing that underpins the performance. And so if we come back to exercise... Does it go back to the governor theory? Then? That's exactly where this goes to, yeah. So the governor theory, and again, I, I, my PhD was on this. Mm. By the time I wrote my PhD up, the governor theory had become so contentious as a black box model that no one wanted to use the word well, For anymore. those who don't know what it is, maybe just explain so, what it means very quickly. So Tim Noakes proposed this idea that instead of exercise failure and fatigue being the result of some system problem in your body whether it was i ran out of energy whether it was i couldn't get enough oxygen or whether it was i got too hot which is obviously the context of our discussion 
the the problem was actually that you were being regulated or governed to avoid those consequences from happening so it's not that you run out of energy it's that you slow down in order to not run out of energy mm. it's not that you ran out of oxygen it's that you had to decrease your pace to protect yourself against running out of oxygen and and, and your body was forcing you to do that yeah your brain your so brain that's where the that. central component of the governor came in is that the brain would sense what was happening to the body mm. so specifically with reference to the heat because it is easily the best model to understand this as the body got hotter and hotter the brain would be monitoring this like a thermostat in an air conditioner <laughs> and say if we don't slow down we are going to fail mm. therefore in order to not fail i'm going to cause you to slow down mm. so it's it became as it, it the distinction between that and the catastrophic some called it catastrophic it's not always catastrophic as in death but when i spoke earlier of the scandinavians they were observing that these runners and cyclists were falling off the treadmill of the bike body temperature 40 degrees celsius brain was losing like the, the blood flow in the brain had dropped off compared to normal temperatures they couldn't activate their muscles they do this really nifty study where they make you do muscle contractions and then they stimulate through your skin and see how much force you can produce and they found that it's not your muscles that are the problem it's that your brain isn't sending the signal to the muscle oh, that's a very clever study that isn't it so yeah that's what they did so they <laughs> so i'll tell you exactly what they did there they make them ride hot or cold conditions for 60 minutes or exhaustion whichever comes first straight off the bike doing a 2 minute long maximum contraction of the, of one muscle group and sure enough in those 2 minutes once the brain is hot you activate less muscle than when you're cool so the hot brain is unable to activate muscle yeah and when i stimulate the muscle independent of your brain it works just fine so it's not that the muscle has failed it's that the central activation of the muscle has been dialed back but the central governor goes even one step beyond that because it's saying we're not going to wait for the brain to get hot for that to happen we're going to reduce that brain muscle signal in advance of getting hot does that make sense so it's a yeah. timing issue that distinguishes yeah. them so we actually challenged the scandinavian model they were saying fatigue in the heat is the result of the attainment of a critical hypotherm hyperthermia in other words we reach a body temperature beyond which we can no longer exercise our thinking was fatigue in the heat and underperformance happens because the brain anticipates mm. a potential hypothermia and then reduces the muscle activation to prevent that from happening so this the very first study i ever had published was a 20 km cycling time trial hot and cold was 35 degrees and 12 degrees for 15 sorry 35 degrees that's tough for the subjects and 15 yeah <laughs> and we made them do 20 k time trials and we measured body temperature muscle activation heart rate rpe all these skin temperatures and so on and the most amazing thing is that within the first 2 km you slow down in the heat but at that moment so over the first 2 k's no difference in heart rate no difference in body temperature no difference in um rating of perceived exertion so why did you slow down well you slowed down because a combination of experience and physiology has taught you that i have to do 30 k's sorry 20 k's if i don't slow down <laughs> i'm going to make 15 yeah, yeah. so very cleverly we start to anticipate or forecast the future consequence of our present action actions and then modify them to get and to the finish line and also consciously i guess 
and consciously uh, because yeah. if you ask the person for perceived exertion they could or how they're feeling they'll probably tell you i'm really hot mm. you know so there's a thermal comfort that's probably driving it in a conscious way and then subconsciously we're not we're not consciously dialing our muscle activation back by nine ten percent but that's just happening so so i ended up calling it anticipatory regulation of performance because that's exactly what was happening was you were regulating performance in anticipation of in this case overheating i suppose that begs the question how do people like jim peters and gabriel and so, a crowd get into the position that they do where they're suffering from essentially heat stroke that is the really important question so first of all this the system that the system that constrains us the regulatory system is quite robust if it wasn't every second person would get heat stroke yeah because at a local 10k Olympic marathon, let's forget local, at the Olympic marathon, at least 50% of the field is highly motivated. Yeah. So if, they, if, if motivation is all it took to break through that glass ceiling, half the race would fall over with heat stroke in a hot day, right? But they don't. Mm -hmm. So whatever's happening is quite robust, but it's not perfect. So a guy like Jim Peters in 1954, I, I assume it was a hot day. Los Angeles 1984 would have been hot in the summer in L.A., uh, the Gold Coast race with Hawkins, Callum Hawkins, was very hot. And last weekend with Matt Beers was hot. And we know there were a couple of cases there. Mm. With the right context, environment, and motivation, a highly motivated athlete can push themselves beyond the point at which the brain has, is able to save them from themselves, <laughs> if that right. makes sense. So okay. motivation, like Matt Beers was trying as hard as he could. Mm. He didn't die. He didn't even get heat stroke. So his body saved him, his brain saved him mm. to fight another day. But there might be one or two people who don't quite get the signal, who are motivated that little bit more, or who just can't escape the situation quickly enough. Mm. Gabriella Anderson came 38th, I think, in that marathon. She wasn't racing for a medal. No. But I think at some point you're in the city of Los Angeles with baking heat, convection off the buildings. <laughs> yeah. And you you just you can't cool down. Even if she walked the rest of the race, she still would have got heat stroke. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's yeah. probably in play there. Yeah. And then finally, there might well be some metabolic problem. You know, when I tell that story about a guy in a bucket of ice who gets hotter and hotter for thirty minutes, that's not normal physiology. That's outliers and that's, there are those. That's a metabolic issue going on there where and the theory is you, you get something in animals called malignant hypothermia where um, basically the, there's a calcium receptor channel in the muscle and it malfunctions and it just churns heat. It just <laughs> it goes haywire basically. It's like a short circuit and it just starts an internal fire. Mm. And you see this with animals under high stress conditions where they actually cook from inside. Sure. And so something's gone wrong there. Yeah. I've got a colleague studying what's called capture myopathy where they, they they go in the wild and they have to capture animals for conversa conversation <laughs> conservation purposes and a lot of the time they, they they chase these animals to dart them but the animal is so stressed out that it triggers this this metabolic condition that, that literally cooks them from within so that sure. so so anyway we don't know that to be true of humans no. but we know that a lot of heat strokes happen without any explanation a guy running a four-hour marathon at 10 degrees celsius should not get heat stroke it's impossible yeah. yet they do mm. so there's some kind of condition where they 
they just generate excessive internal heat, and that's what happened to the guy in the in the bathtub with ice. Mm. So yeah, that's that's the that's the yeah. short answer. So as there, much yeah. as as many humans there are in the world, everybody's slightly different in the way they handle heat, and and, and obviously there's those outliers that yeah. are and that don't so conform I, to the norms. Yeah, yeah, so I suspect that there's some pathology, and that exercise and heat might be the trigger for that, and then once that's kicked in. You are in serious trouble, you know, in the same way that you get sudden cardiac deaths. Um, yeah, so that's probably what it is. But the, I guess the point is, and coming back to what I began with, is perception makes the difference. Mm. So we slow down in the heat because we have a perception that it's hot. Mm. And if we want to, if we want to protect our heat performance, we would change that perception. Mm. There's a drug, by the way, and then I'll, I'll stop, called bupropion, which is commonly prescribed as an antidepressant but it acts in the brain and it actually changes arousal levels and that drug improves performance in the heat but not the cold and the way that it does that is it takes away that feedback signal and the interpretation of that signal that would normally slow you down so when you put these guys in the heat they just exercise and, exercise and they get to 41 degrees celsius whereas normally they'd have stopped at 40 so it, it's yeah. almost like acts like a central nervous obviously system. Obviously, quite dangerous. The results of that. So it's banned. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we talked a lot about heat. Um, humidity is obviously what people talk about a lot when when they talk about heat in those yeah. sort of circumstances. Yeah. They you can have twenty five degrees Celsius, um, with you know fifty percent humidity and it's fine. But if it's one hundred percent humidity, obviously it changes. What do we know about the effects of humidity and heat versus just heat on its own? Yeah, it's actually an oversight um, of mine to talk about heat when actually what I mean is heat index. Yeah, <laughs> so heat Which combines humidity. Yeah, so air temperature by itself is not the, not the consideration. Obviously, mm. that makes a difference when it's 40 degrees. But when it's 28 degrees and 90% hum humid, that's the same situation as maybe a 40 degrees. Yeah. So there's actually, there is something called a heat index. The National Weather Service of the U.S. produces it. And I'm looking at one right here. So I haven't done these conversions from Fahrenheit to Celsius, but we can make those. But for instance, 90 degrees Fahrenheit with 30% humidity has a, has, is a heat index of 88. Right. So it's lower than so, it feels. So it feels cooler than it is. Yeah. Makes that sense? would be relatively mild. No, well, I mean, warm, 990 warm. is still hot. It's still warm, but, it's like, but now consider 90 degrees with 95% humidity feels like 127 on the heat index. Right. So, so that you can see the point I'm making is that the swing caused sure. by humidity is enormous. Mm. And that was why, that's why Olympic Games in summer are always so challenging because they tend to be in hot and humid places. Athens, sure. Beijing. Yeah. Um, Sydney was maybe one exception. Where was the last one in Tokyo? Same story. Tokyo. So yeah. you, get this, you get this combination of heat and humidity mm. and that's the problem. Why yeah. is it a problem? Because we produce heat, obviously, during exercise through muscle contraction. And that's going to cause our body temperature to go up. We have to lose that heat. And that happens via three ways, but for exercise, two main ones. One is convection, which is air cooling. So that's why if you're cycling on your indoor without a fan, it feels 50% harder than with a fan on. And that's just the, the air on your skin. Movement of air over the skin removes the heat. And that's why we send the blood to the skin. That's the cutaneous skin vasodilation that I spoke of earlier, right? That creates that tension. Mm -hmm. And then the second one is evaporation of sweat. Now, sweat doesn't remove heat unless it evaporates. So when you drip that sweat off, like when you're watching the Australian Open tennis and the guy's bouncing the ball and you see a waterfall of sweat running off his nose and his face, yeah. that's not helping him. No. He has to evaporate the sweat. 
obviously you can't see that happening but yeah but the problem is humidity constrains evaporative capacity uh, so at okay. some point well not at some point but as the humidity goes up the capacity of the environment to take that heat up as evaporation goes down so the drier the heat yep. the better your body's ability has to use sweat to cool it down ex exactly right uh, yes exactly because right. and in fact that's why that's why and i'm looking again at this table if a temperature of 113 degrees fahrenheit which I'm, i need to just convert this i should have done this before it's pretty hot that's that's very hot <laughs> 113 fahrenheit is 45 degrees celsius right mm -hmm. with a humidity of five percent is equivalent to 104 fahrenheit but if that humidity goes up to 60 percent it's 159 wow <laughs> so that's the heat index yeah so yeah. now you see the point yeah. is so, so that's actually, actually what you need to be if you're judging heat impact yeah that's what you should be looking at correct and yeah. and and actually as i said it was an oversight not to do that in the beginning but everything i said in the first 50 odd minutes of this applies to heat index yeah you know so when we talk about an uncompensable heat in mm -hmm. environment you're talking about the the the, the mix between humidity yeah. and temperature and wind by the way because a still day is much more difficult than a hot than a windy day for sure because there's less convective cooling mm. and sunlight so that's the fourth avenue by which we gain heat sorry that's the th the other avenue by which we gain heat you can also lose heat through radiation mm. but the radiative heat from the sun makes a big difference yeah, yeah. being in the shade makes a difference you that's you, yeah. as you as you yeah. discovered practically yeah. every every human knows that in fact the, yeah. There's a clip of Jim Peters available, I think, online when he's collapsing in Vancouver and he's walking around the track and instinctively he finds the shade to collapse in. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. You just know. So, so that's why, and there are literally hundreds of these indexes or indices, thermal indices, where they integrate air temperature, humidity, wind speed, and radiation, solar radiation. But most sports events will have some policy that recognizes the heat index and the main ones are the humidity and the temperature and they'll make decisions yeah. based on that well i was going to get onto that so based on everything that we've said and using the example of this articos extreme and other events mm. that happen in very hot countries it seems to me that there isn't a guideline or significant guideline in terms of heat and this heat index that there is a standard across the world that says if the heat index is x the event shouldn't be run. It seems a bit sort of scattered, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit. And in defense of the, the non-existent uniformity or, or agreement, there is some interesting research where the, the incidence of heat stroke is highest at the beginning of a season than, than, than in other parts of the season, which is because of adaptation driving yeah. the outcome. Coming not out of winter. Right. So it's that yeah. transition from cool to hot. Again, I mentioned earlier the American football in this in their preseason training camps, you know, which mm. happen in their in their late summers, I guess, because the winter sport there, right? Mm. Um, they go from not training to to training in full gear and so on. Even though they're coming from a hot environment, it's the the heat stress of that equipment in that instance. Mm. Uh, London Marathon often has problems because it's it's run in April and no one's ad adapted yet. So, twenty six degrees in London can be a bad day out. Yeah. In South Africa, 26 degrees, Matt Beers is, is laughing all the way to the finish line, right? Because he's dealt with 46. Absolutely. So, so in actual fact, that that's probably an argument against a single cutoff point because you have to be nuanced about who's participating in this, what time of year is it, how adapted are they likely to be. So that makes it quite tricky to actually have one definitive statement. 
So you're suggesting that heat policy is almost impossible to I think, implement No, I don't as think, a guideline. Because no, if I, I was a race organizer like the guys well, at Atacuas, yes, surely I would have, in the morning of the race, gone and consulted somebody right. so, who says, well, maybe we shouldn't have this race today. Yeah, if you if consulted me, I said, thanks. Would no. you have said no? Yeah. Yeah, at, at start line temperatures at what, like thirty-five degrees, yeah. with anticipating fifty. No way. There's not a there's not a combination of heat index and heat temperature and humidity in the world. There, there would be, be low cons- humidity. Don't forget there. At, yeah, that's yeah. the one it's saving dry. grace. But yeah. still, this fifty degrees is fifty degrees. Yeah. <laughs> so that's interesting because, you, as a sports scientist, with the knowledge that you have, you would have given them advice saying you should oh, cancel the race or, today. Or, ma- ma- you see, maybe not cancel, but. If you're going to let people go in those circumstances, you have to be very, very clear that you're going to provide avenues for people to cool off along the way. Because once they leave that start block and the 121k later, because this is point to point, eh? Yes. That's the problem. In you Atticos. can't do a shortcut. There's no, and there's nowhere to escape it. Yeah. So, so you'd, if I was a race organizer there, I'd be thinking like every 20k's, I need some kind of refrigeration. I need, I need big tubs with ice water that I can keep cold because. I'm almost sure that 50 people out of my 600 starters are going to need to jump in there. You told me stories of friends of yours that were finding streams to lie down in. Yeah. Now, that's the kind of mitigation strategy you would need. So, for example, right now, Australian Open Tennis is on. They've, to some extent, solved this problem by putting a roof on the main arenas in the last couple of years. But do you remember five, six years ago, they always had heat issues. Yeah. And so they developed a policy where there are five levels, one, two, one, two three, four, and five one is nothing. Two is encourage people to drink, which is useless. But by the time you get to four, four and five, level five is we cancel all games. They don't play. And, I, and level four is after the second set in women's matches and the third set in men's matches, we have a 10-minute break where everyone can go in, cool off, and come back out again. So there's mitigation strategies that you can at least put in place. Mm. Gold Coast Marathon policy I was able to find. Uh, once the temperature is 26, they consider that to be high risk. And they introduce more water stations and medical personnel. At 26 degrees Celsius. 26 degrees or, or higher. And That's just based on 60%. temperature only. Yeah, and they also say humidity exceeds 60%. Right. From 30 and above, it's extreme. And they say can- cancellation and postponement. Wow. Yeah. So, anyway, you get the idea is that... I mean, I can just think off the top of my head, you know, four mm. or five events that have well exceeded 30 degrees Celsius, mm. events that I participated right. in. Right. Ironman events, um, you know, events here in South Africa that are well beyond that extreme level with none of those mitigation strategies in place at all. And that's why, that's, that's why you would want to, so, so in answer to your question earlier, every event should consider its own context to develop some sort of guidelines, but you can't have a guideline that covers all events because even in South Africa, an event in March would be safe for an event in September would not at the same temperatures yeah because in march for south africans you're coming after your fourth month of summer most people will handle 30 30 degrees celsius mm. in august 30 degrees celsius will be potentially very dangerous for us the inverse is true in the in the northern hemisphere uh, an event in march is probably for them very unsafe yeah the same event in september would be safer so it depends latitude affects it you know what what happens in the southern states of the united states will be different to what's safe in the northern states because of what they're accustomed to. So you have to sort of know your audience a little bit and then also know the time of year and then understand your event. 
See, not to harp on about this, but a couple of years ago, I did an event London to Paris, and uh, the first leg is from London to the coast of Folkestone before you go across to Paris, and it was the hottest day in British history. <laughs> I think the temperatures were like 42, 42 degrees Celsius on that day, and I felt that on that day that I that they should have cut that race short because it wasn't a race designed for high-end athletes. It was a lot of um, people who were just out there for a touring event. But the extreme temperatures were high risk and they did not have the resources to look after That's the key. multiple emergencies. Mm. Mm. That's the key, right? Mm. Which you is can, the reason why I maybe yeah. think about having this index is uh, so critical, mm. having some sort of guideline like they do with the British, t- uh, like they have with the Australian Open, where there is a, a one to a five. Everybody around around the world understands that when you're in that sort of territory, you need to consider some different mm. strategy. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You can appreciate, obviously, the, the practical dilemma for the organizers is that there's no, there's no substitute day. Yeah. And so they would lose considerable. So it's a business decision, actually, yeah, weighed up against a human potentially decision. Mm. But you're right. I mean, every event should have some sort of policy in place. And if, and if they're not going to ever cancel it, fine. But then you have to have some pretty um, well thought through mm. necessary mitigation procedures, you know. And, and as I say, the best thing is buckets of ice for people to get into and cool off when there's a mm. problem. And that needs to be every 10, 20K or so because mm. that's every hour if you're if you're on a bike at 46 degrees celsius and you start running into problems yeah half an hour is too long to wait yeah so you, you need mm. um mm. You need access to cooling really really quickly so at the very least events should have a plan that says when it reaches this level we're going to have that 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 facility available and to challenge you, I know that you, you obviously you, a lot of your, your day job is working for World Rugby. Mm. Is there a heat policy around rugby matches? Um, They've never had to think of one because it's a winter sport that's never been played in hot places. Mm. Now that, interestingly, now that the... Um, it's become a year-round sport though, hasn't it? Well, that's a, yeah, because now there's a new... Non-rugby followers wouldn't maybe realize this, but in the last two or three years, South African teams have begun to play in the European competitions. And now all of a sudden, for the first time, we have a cross-hemisphere competition. Mm. <laughs> and the consequence is that those European teams would have to come here now. I mean, imagine coming out of Glasgow or Edinburgh or yeah. London on the 17th of January and landing in Cape Town yesterday. <laughs> so maybe that's going to be your <laughs> next task. So, that, so there may well be. So what they, what they have... So, so, sorry. So what they have done is we've got some rugby tournaments that happen in the early part of the year when it's quite hot and they allow a 20-minute break. Sorry. They allow a break at 20 minutes of each half, which is halfway through the half. Mm. Football has got the same thing on hot days. They had it in the Euros last year, I believe, and it'll definitely be in play at the World Cup later this year where they also have a, a what they call a cooling break midway through each of the halves. Mm. So they have thought about that. And yeah, out of interest, intermittent sprint exercise is quite dangerous heat-wise because you, you, you're exercising at a high enough intensity when you sprint to really elevate your body temperature but you're doing it over the course of 90 minutes. So your exposure is high and your intensity is high. Yeah, no so they, they can actually be quite a problem. Mm. So that will be interesting to see what yeah. FIFA decides. I mean, the main thing they did with Qatar is to put it in November. I mean, if it was in June, July, it'd be unplayable. Mm. Yeah. Or well, <laughs> so, the World Athletics Championships in Doha when they had the uh, right. the marathon at midnight. Just it, to try and, yeah. And remember, the yeah. athletes were still collapsing yeah, all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another example. I mean, this, that's why this heat thing is so interesting. You see it in play all the time. Mm. 
Remember, there were hardly any heat strokes. There were mm. lots of heat exhaustions and collapsed athletes and athletes who just had had the mm. worst day of their professional running careers. Yeah. But you didn't hear of like two two twenty four marathon runners ended up in hospital in ICU as a consequence. So mm. the body is smart, but mm. we also have to be sensible. Like I say, any fool can suffer. Yeah. But event event organizers have to take every precaution to minimize that suffering mm. and the consequences of it. Mm. And that's where I think you need a policy per event, you know? Mm. Yeah. yeah. I, I tried, by the way, to look up exactly what makes a level four in the Australian Open tennis and five, mm. and I couldn't find it. Mm. What's the combination of mm. humidity and, and temperature? It's, but if you were given the task of saying with your background in history and somebody said to you, okay, we've got a cycling event in South Africa in the middle of summer and we've got a marathon in, in the in hmm. spring in London. Yes. Um, could you devise a strategy for those two events? Is, that, is, that, a, is that a relatively... Is that a relatively simple thing to do if you look at the timings and where it is and the history and humidity factors and that sort of thing? Is no, it it's possible? not simple, but it sure is possible. It would make an interesting project. Yeah. What would my approach be? I would... I would look at the historical weather data for the mm. two months leading up to it, and I would probably, instead of saying 30 degrees is dangerous, I would say average temperature over the last three weeks plus six. I don't know. I'm, make, I'm making this up now. Don't quote me on this. Yeah. You know what I mean? So if the average temperature in London is 18, maybe 24 becomes our level two. Right. Maybe 28, which is plus uh, 10, becomes our level three, and over 30 becomes our level four. Yeah. And so you make it. You make that decision based on what most of your athletes would be habituated to. You can yeah. never mitigate the guy who comes from the, the freezing cold climate to run in the. I mean, you can't. Yeah. But yeah, I would based on historical data what it's been like, and then what is it on the day. Just incidentally, um, your ability to lose heat to the environment, as I've mentioned, is a function of humidity and air temperature. Makes sense, right? Yeah. Humidity because. At a certain point, you can no longer evaporate enough sweat to cool you down. Sweat capacity, evaporation capacity drops. Where it's interesting is the air temperature because we can warm our skins up in order to keep a gradient between ourselves and the environment. So if the air temperature is 18 degrees and my skin is 28, I'm losing nice heat, you know, 10 degree difference between myself and the air. Mm-hmm. As the air gets warmer and warmer, we can get our skin temperature higher and higher. But at some point, that reaches a limit. And that limit is at about 35 degrees. So that's, as, that's about as hot as our skin can get. Yeah. So the moment the air temperature hits 35, it means that our skin and the air are the same. Mm. And we can no longer lose heat through convection. Yeah. And so then the only avenue we've got is evaporation. Mm. Now if the humidity hits 60%, that disappears. So if you want a start point, 35 degrees with 50-60% humidity is probably the limit for <laughs> For endurance yeah, exercise. Makes total sense. And then you work down from there and you say, how, what can we get away with here? Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much, Professor Ross Tucker. Really interesting discussion. And for those of you that might be freezing in Europe somewhere, keep a note of this uh, podcast when your summer hits because it sir, will be very useful when you're having to deal with the very hot temperatures. And for those of you that live in the Southern Hemisphere, particularly in South Africa over the last week, I'm sure you will have uh, experienced a lot of the things that we've discussed in our discussion today. Don't forget, you can uh, be part of our discussion on our Twitter feed, which is Sports SciPod, Sports and then S-C-I-P-O-D. And uh, let us know about your experiences of heat. And uh, we've had bad experiences, good experiences, lessons learned, anything 
anything like that. We're always very interested to hear uh, some of your thoughts around our discussions. But uh, from us, for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.